Hi, everyone. It's Ryan Hoover, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm visiting Kleiner Perkins in South Park to chat with Eugene Wei and Eric Fang. Eugene has worked at some of the biggest tech companies over the past few decades. He saw the early days of Amazon, working as a group product manager in the late 90s and early 2000s. Afterward, he went on to join Hulu, started the company with Eric called Early, led product at Flipboard, and most recently left his role as head of video at Oculus. He's also a prolific writer. You should check out his blog at eugeneway.com. Eric has also worked at some of the most notable companies, including Microsoft, Hulu with Eugene, and Flipboard. Most recently, he co-founded Packaged, and then recently announced he's stepping down as general partner at Kleiner Perkins. You should also check out his blog. He's writing on Medium, has a lot of really interesting data-driven blog posts. Check it out. On the podcast, we chat about how tech has transformed the entertainment industry, what we can learn from China's tech ecosystem, and how feedback loops from wearables will change the way we learn and live. But before I jump in, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors. Fun fact, the gorgeous 1985 Ferrari Testarossa has appreciated upward of 400% over the past 10 years, outperforming the S&P 500, most real estate, and other traditional investments. The problem is regular investors like myself don't have a few hundred thousand dollars laying around to buy and hold these rare and expensive assets. With this realization, New York-based Rally Road built an app, you may have seen it on Product Hunt last year, so that normal folks like myself can invest in high-value alternative assets like the Ferrari for as little as $50 per share. You can even get a fancy share certificate so you can show it off to your friends. All offerings are SEC registered, and all assets are museum quality and professionally maintained by the company for long-term appreciation. Members can participate in initial offerings as well as buy and sell shares in regular trading windows for each asset, very similar to the stock market. They're starting with classic cars, but look out for their launch of the second asset class in early 2019 as they work towards democratizing alternative asset investing. Check it out at joinrally.com slash product hunt. In addition to my day job at Product Hunt, I also invest in early stage startups through a fund I started. I called it Weekend Fund. At first, I was hesitant to invest in startups, worried that my time would get sucked away into back office management, LP tax reporting, and all the overhead that goes into managing a fund. Fortunately, AngelList Venture Services handle all that for me, so I can focus on finding and backing great entrepreneurs. So far, AngelList has hosted over 130 venture funds, ranging from $500,000 to several millions of dollars under management. The team is super knowledgeable, having supported hundreds of investors over the years, and eager to help fund managers plan a fundraising strategy. Once you've raised capital from LPs, you choose what startups to back, and AngelList handles the rest. If you're interested in investing in startups, take a look at angel.co slash venture funds, or email me at ryan at producthunt.com, and I'd be happy to help. Hey, everybody. This is Ryan Hoover. I'm at Kleiner Perkins here in South Park in San Francisco with Eugene and Eric. How's it going, guys? Good. How you doing, man? I am doing well. So I don't know if we've had two people that have worked together at three companies before. This might be a record. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna go one step even deeper than that. Have you ever had somebody marry the other person? So Eugene was the officiant at my wedding. What? Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that because I did not marry Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't know you two were married. Um, <laughs> we're not married, but you married <laughs> us. That's impressive. Yeah. You have photos? We can put it maybe in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. I got Eugene in like a minister robe with a you know very stately looking uh, moleskin notebook that looks like a Bible. It's very uh, very professional. Nice, nice. So how did you guys meet? What's your background and history together? 
We actually met in Seattle. I was at Amazon and Eric was at Microsoft. But I actually met uh, the woman who would become Eric's wife uh, because she was working at Amazon at the time. And so we ended up in the same social circles. Yeah. And actually, um, Eugene and I used to play in a pickup basketball game that was at 6 a.m. on Saturday mornings at an ungodly time because Why? a bunch of the people <laughs> in this pickup league had kids. So that was like the one time they could get away. You know, the, the, the wife or the significant other would watch the kids and they would get to, to play a little bit of ball in the morning. But yeah, as a, uh, as a single guy, it was just literally the worst possible time to go play ball. But, you know, we like playing ball. Uh, that game was actually pretty legendary in terms of the people that played in there. So Jason Kyler, our former boss, uh, CEO of Hulu, Owen Venata, uh, who is, uh, COO of Facebook and Zynga. Dan, Dan Rose. Rose. Ran Beatty. At uh, at Facebook, uh, I mean, yeah. who else? It was just like I mean, uh, who's so many who? people. Bill yeah. Carr was Bill there. Carr, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who's now of CEO of OfferUp, but just like a gajillion super successful, amazing uh, tech executives and entrepreneurs, and then uh, two scrubs, Eugene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice. So you you first met? Was it? Did you meet at Hulu, or was it before then? It was before. This was uh, we, uh, we were both in Seattle. I was at Microsoft, and he was at Amazon. Yeah. So how did you end up both at Hulu? Was it? Did you recruit each other? It was kind of random. I was actually in film school at UCLA and Jason went to take on this job and I had been, you know, I knew he was going to do it and that it was down the street from me. And he had said, Hey, what are you doing? You know, your first summer after your first year of film school. And, you know, anyone who's been in the entertainment business knows the internships you get are mostly like making coffee for free and doing script coverage and and I wasn't so interested in all of that. And Jason's like, look, we got to launch this product in a couple of months. It's kind of what you used to do at Amazon. Why don't you just come do this for the summer? So I was like, yeah, that sounds good. And then Eric had a startup actually in Beijing. And Jason also knew Eric. So, you know, to fill out the team, it just made sense to bring Eric and the whole team on. So we ended up buying Eric's startup and he came on to be the CTO. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then my number one job was to convince Eugene not to go back to film school. <laughs> we were very successful in that. And that was, uh, it was, turned out to be a great move. Nice. Huge loss for Hollywood, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, That's yeah, right. you support it in different ways. Um, I mean, Hulu, Hulu has grown quite a bit. It's, how long has it been around now? Almost a decade? 2007 yeah. was when it started. So, wow. Officially crazy. got formed in March of 2007. That's when Fox and NBC formed the joint venture. And then they brought Jason on July 8th. And then I started a week later on July 15th. Yeah, they acquired our company. And um, so sort of like founding team got there in July, but the JV got set up in March. Yeah. What do you think about as you kind of look back on over a decade ago and who was just starting like videos on the internet has changed quite a bit. And of course, we have, you know, all the other players, Amazon, of course, Amazon Prime, we have Netflix, we have the social media sites like Facebook and Twitter, of course, driving tons of views, YouTube. Did you foresee that kind of change or shift? Or like, what as you reflect, what do you what do you think about where we are now? Well, I've always been super bullish on video, as anyone who knows me would say, I think in terms of a medium, versus text and audio, it's probably the most valuable. And so I'm not surprised at how much has been invested in video. I think we're just through sort of like the probably the end of the phase one of how Silicon Valley invaded Hollywood, which was, you know, the first couple efforts, people don't remember this now, like the first Netflix originals, the first Amazon Prime video originals weren't that great. I think a lot of tech companies would admit that they overpaid for licensing a bunch of old library content from Hollywood. But the thing is that won't always last, right? You get data and feedback immediately on that. And eventually what you realize is 
the history of Hollywood is one where the studios gradually went from vertically integrated to really being just financiers and marketers. And the thing about Silicon Valley versus Hollywood is that Silicon Valley tech companies have a lot more cash than all the studios put together. They're a lot more profitable because of their other businesses. And so phase one has been basically the tech companies come in and step in and do the financing themselves directly and basically cut the studios out of it. So you've seen what's happened to Hollywood. We're basically down to Disney and Warner Brothers being, you know, the two sort of like viable studios and any other studio that survives is probably part of some larger thing like Universal is as part of Comcast and NBC. So I think that phase is largely complete. (laughs) And now we'll see what the second phase is. Yeah, as a technologist um, and just somebody that loves building and, and creating technology, I think what's so fascinating about media is that every part of the media product has been impacted by technology. If you think about a product life cycle, uh, there's really four phases that every product goes through. You got to make the product, got to distribute it, got to end up monetizing or selling it, and then the consumers end up using it. And that's just the circle that every product goes through. And take, for example, like the shirt I'm wearing. It got made in some textile factory. The distribution is t- was through a retail store. I paid in cash by going to the store and then I wore it. I put it on. But in the era of technology, two of those things have really fundamentally changed. The way it's distributed and the way I purchase it. So now I buy it online and it's sent to my home. But the way it was created and the way it's consumed is still largely the same. Like this shirt, pre-internet and post-internet was still made in a textile factory and I'm still wearing it like, you know, one sleeve at a time. But if you look at media, every part of the product life cycle has been not just slightly changed, but completely transformed by tech. The way content is created, it's not done in studios with professionals anymore. There's UGC that's dominating content consumption. Distribution is all over the top digital. You don't go and pick up physical media. You don't go to Blockbuster uh, anymore. You don't watch linearly. It's all on demand. The way it's monetized is so differently now. I can pay for things a la carte. I can get a bundle of just one channel. I can do things that are ad-supported. I can tip for content like on Patreon and Twitch. Um, so that's completely different. And then the way it's consumed is differently. I'm watching it on my phone, vertical orientation, you know, small screen, short form. Um, so every part of media has been transformed by tech. So I think that that is really interesting and it just creates a lot of uh, opportunities going forward. Yeah. One, one area of media and entertainment too that's starting to transform is through kind of synthetic media is, is one kind of definition of it, which for those that don't know, like Lil Michaela is, is a popular example where it's a sure. completely CGI character. It's made up. It's very similar to Hollywood entertainment where you do have a script and you have writers and you have a storyline that you create, but the person that's performing the storyline and part of the story is not a real person. And as technology actually advances to become more accessible, I'm actually thinking like when you talk about verticalization, like do we also remove the actors, like the people? Now, I'm not saying, you know, every, you know, film and movie is going to be like that, but there will be some that actually are synthetic characters or fake people. Are you seeing a lot of things in that? Like what what are your thoughts around synthetic media and digital characters and all of that? Well, certainly the avatars and all these sort of like digital celebrities are very trendy right now. I'm probably, I would say, more bearish on a lot of that than the average person in Silicon Valley right now, uh, largely for uh, a couple reasons. One is that if you spend any amount of time in Hollywood, you realize that the competition for like Lil Michaela or somebody like that is actually just real people. And Hollywood is flush with a lot of just, you know, charismatic, beautiful, talented people looking for a break. And so 
and and they work for very little in the beginning of their careers. Yeah. So I think that's one part of it. And second, and maybe this is more bullish about characters like Loma Kayla, I think a lot of, we've always had animation, right? Disney characters, all of those are just animated. But there is a certain amount of investment you put into creating an inner life for those characters and narrative, which, you know, for me, following Loma Kayla on Instagram and seeing the stories, thus far, I feel like it's a very social media type of approach to building out a story around the character. And I, I think there's some activation energy, which may be writing a script and doing a movie like Frozen, which, you know, creates a character that people follow. And I also tend to think that skews probably yeah, tends to skew younger, the attachment to that. So I, I think we already have digital celebrities. They are, you know, whatever the characters from Frozen are or Moana or all of those. But that effort of creating that story is still somewhat of a scarce talent yeah i think it's certainly an interesting part of the evolution of media but the probably the next step is not wholesale change to pure synthetic pure deep fake pure ai driven content but that is tools put into the hands of traditionally very talented creators and having them augment their work or even get efficiencies on their work by using these tools that's probably the next step it's like you know on the av side uh you know instead of going straight to like full-on autonomous you have you know, adaptive cruise control now. And that will be widespread and widely adopted before you have the full-on autonomous. So that's probably what we're going to see next where, you know, for uh, for example, the, the camera apps now, um, they can make you look better. They can make you look thinner or more muscular or, you know, have different haircuts. And, and you know, eventually you can even move in ways that you couldn't move before because of some of this tech. But it's still up to you to use that to craft as opposed to having a computer do it all for you. So I think that'll be the next step in the next wave of how this technology gets rolled out. Yeah. yeah. A few days ago, there was a product on, on product on called Reflect, and it took you take two faces, could be your own face or could be a friend's <laughs> face, and it merges it together, and yeah. it's crazy. It, it, it's kind of wild, actually, how accurate and how you know realistic it looks. Because yeah. I've seen products like this on product on a year or two ago that had similar types of value props, and they weren't nearly as good. Yeah. And now I'm just incredibly impressed the, with where we're you see now. the Nvidia research paper they released. Yeah. Uh, they like completely synthesized human faces, like unsupervised, uh, using a GAN. It was really impressive. Yeah. yeah. I tend to always, you know, go back to the idea that uh, scarcity has value. So what these technologies do is they'll make certain things widely available to everybody. But in some way, that also devalues that particular part of the stack of the entertainment business. But like Eric said, they will be great tools for increasing the efficiency of the Hollywood production cycle. You know, if you ever read about Pixar and how they have to animate particular scenes to test out if they really work, you know, that's like still a somewhat costly and slow process. But if you can have, you know, a computer help out with that process and generate a bunch of variants on a scene to test out whether a scene has the right emotional beats, that will really speed up the production cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Eugene, you were at Oculus for a while, uh, mm -hmm. more recently. What are your thoughts around media as it applies to VR and, and that kind of world? Do you do you think VR, is that going to be the way that we consume media in the future at some point, primarily? I still believe VR in the long run is going to be one of the most revolutionary medium shifts in the world. However, kind of like VR, AR, if you lump it in with self-driving cars, generalized artificial intelligence, cryptocurrency, all of these things, I think will just take longer than people expect. And that's fine. 
They're going to require a lot of big hardware advances, you know, finding the right use cases. All of that is just going to just be slower. But they're all going to change the world in, in huge ways. The thing about video when it applies to VR is it is really a significant sort of change in storytelling. You know, the idea of a spectator who can look at any place in the scene where you can't narrowly control their field of view, the feeling of bodily presence of the spectator, it's very different from, say, film or television where there's just like a very much a distance between you and what's happening on the screen. And I think all sorts of filmmakers are going to just have to figure out how to best tell stories in that medium. I think it's very exciting and it's going to be very revolutionary, but it's going to be very different. Yeah. Have you played with Sandbox VR yet? I have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah it, Season's great. Yeah. Great I, guy. How, how would you describe it and for people that don't know? So Sandbox VR is physical VR uh, presences where um, you go to a studio that's been set up and customized for VR experiences as, uh, as opposed to being at home. And then you do it in a social setting with a with a group of friends. So the, the canonical use case is at a mall. It's like a perfect mall entertainment, small physical footprint, but sort of infinite amount of different entertainment experiences you can squeeze in that because it's all digitized. Really interesting. And uh, the, the thing about, about Sandbox that, that I really enjoyed was certainly the, the social aspect of it uh, and going into a room with other people. It's really compelling. The interesting thing, uh, the, the thing that, that was less compelling in this first iteration is that it's still very much a linear storytelling format. You know, you're playing like a zombie game or a pirate game and it's, it's, it's very much this linear format. So if you do it the second time or the third time, it's meh. It's, yeah. it's, it's just less interesting. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to CSUN actually, and I was saying a great game that they should do is Midway Madness, um, which is like my favorite roller coaster at California Adventure, mm. where you're going around with the Toy Story characters and you get to, uh, like you're at a carnival and you need to like knock down bottles and shoot balloons. And you can play that over and over and over game because there's this element of skill involved. Like they should just turn that into like a VR Midway Madness that you play with your buddies. That would be killer. Yeah, I think I, I had such a good time and I've done various VR experiences. Sure. That was the first one that felt very immersive because you move around in a room, you yeah. have a gun that you hold and you feel, you have your friends that you're playing with and you can high five each other and see yeah. each other in VR. It was really impressive. And it was finally, and, and this was using today's tech in terms of like the resolution wasn't great. Yeah. Like it could look a lot better, but even then it felt so immersive and so fun. Mm -hmm. Have you yeah. gone back? Well, I haven't gone back. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe that's because it's in San Mateo. Yeah. <laughs> I would actually, I would go back with friends multiple times, actually, if it was convenient, if it was in San Francisco. And even though it's like $30, $35, I think, a session for 30 minutes, it's not cheap. Yeah. It's fun. I think the crazy thing about VR and AR and all of this is that in the past, when we've built products and technology, you're usually like, all right, this is not reality. This is going to be mediated through a phone, but we will try to do some things differently that are more efficient than the real world. I think what's powerful about VR, AR is you'll be able to both compete with reality by simulating a lot of the best aspects of reality, that feeling of presence and everything, while simultaneously also dealing with some of the spatial friction in the world and discarding it. So I, I think we've never had a medium that could do both simultaneously. It is going to take a bunch of advances to get to that phase. But when it does, it'll be powerful. And the second thing is, I do think we are grappling now with this idea that, wow, we've had all these huge tech advances in the last couple of years, but some of the downsides are it's made people feel more lonely or more unhappy in certain ways. And so the question for VR AR is, will we be able to solve some of those loneliness, distancing qualities of technology? What is that uncanny valley of intimacy where if you and I were both in VR doing this podcast right now, 
it would feel almost the same as doing it as we are, you know, sitting next to each other. And I think that's an open question. Some people are very down on the idea of, you know, feeling simultaneous presence in VR. But I actually, I was surprised in VR at how little was needed to make me feel like I was with someone in the same room. So, yeah. Have you played with or seen Spatial at all? No. They launched or made an announcement a few weeks ago. They, they're building essentially AR tools for the workplace. Mm. So better ways to communicate with distributed and remote teams. I actually got a, a demo. They went to the Angelus office and anywhere HoloLens, which of course is... It's actually HoloLens? Yeah, they, they, um, they, they use, use Microsoft. Okay. Yeah. You can also, I think they also integrate with Magic Leap. Yeah. But yeah, they, they use their hardware and they built software to project kind of a hologram of you. You can actually just take a photo and they can project it as if it's you. Yeah. And you can move around and you can whiteboard together. And it's, it's still early days. Like it's not something I would use with the team, but you can see where it gets to the point where your Monday board meeting, let's say at Kleiner Perkins, maybe you don't need to come to the office next time. It's just like you replicate the exact same feeling of being, you know, together with your partners, but remotely. Totally. You know, I think that the enterprise may be the first place where VR and AR really break out because you, you can just mandate things more so and cost becomes less an issue. Whereas on the consumer side, it, it is harder. You have to convince the user to obstruct their face, put something on their on their head. But, you know, if you're in a factory floor, you'd be like, hey, this is now like the workplace equipment that everyone has to wear these goggles and everyone has to put this on because it actually is, you know, it's on company time um, and you can really force some of that behavior change. So uh, I think view enterprise may be the first mm-hmm. place that rolls out. Yeah. yeah. And we already have some forms of uh, primitive augmented reality even before magic leaps and things, right? Like if you put on your headphones when you're jogging and you put on some, you know, upbeat music to try to get yourself into the workout frame of mind. Now extrapolate that to VR. We complain often about how our environments sort of affect our work productivity and everything. VR allows you to lower the cost of altering your environment to almost zero, theoretically, in the future. I think that's going to have huge benefits for productivity. You may be like, working from home is not optimal because you have all these distractions, but you you may be able to change your home into a more productive space for yourself. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be big. Stay tuned for a mini interview with Phil, co-founder of Carbon, a GE Ventures portfolio company that's created the groundbreaking new method of 3D printing inspired by the Terminator. What other spaces are you excited about? Are there other fields that are nascent that you as maybe as an investor want to invest in or i love a couple of areas one is i think that commerce is going through a lot of reinvention right now so that's an area that i'm just particularly interested in in that a couple things the first is just that the original wave of of e-commerce transformation was really just getting people comfortable with this new buying behavior of buying waiting a few days and having it arrive and not getting to touch and see the product i mean it's a big change but now that that behavior has been established and proven out and people are now comfortable with it, you're seeing all sorts of interesting new experiences built on top of that base behavior change, uh, whether it's entire brands that have never existed in the physical world before, uh, which is pretty interesting and compelling, really immersive, engaging, entertaining shopping experiences you see on Instagram. You know, my, my, my favorite side around this is actually, if you, like, if you count the number of top 20 shopping apps that have more than 20 minute DAU session times, it's actually higher than the number of top 20 social apps that have more than 20 minute DAU session times. There's very few social apps that actually do. It's pretty much Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook. That's about it. But on the shopping side, you have 
Poshmark, OfferUp, LetGo, Top Hatter, Wish, and so forth. So many that are super engaging because of, of this new experience of treating uh, products like content. So I think that's a really interesting trend as well. And uh, the last one is that post Google and, and to extent Facebook as well, there's this huge shift towards uh, ad supported monetization for everything. Like the entire world had moved to ads and that was the only way that you could build a company anymore, especially a consumer company because uh, consumers would never pay for any service ever again. But that pendulum I think has swung really far back over where because of, of this new paradigm shift of people being comfortable with e-commerce and, and now mobile even facilitating that more, you know, people pay a buck for an app. They pay for $2.99 a month for one specific bundle of content. They pay for little virtual goods inside a game. So they're used to paying for things. And commerce is now, uh, I think, a far more interesting monetization vehicle for startups than advertising has been. And it's really driven by the the ARPU of it. Um, in an advertising model, the revenue that you earn per user is not only small on absolute uh, scale, but it's also the delta between your average users and your best users is actually quite quite capped. You know, our best user at Hulu uh, would generate slightly more revenue than our average user at Hulu, for example, because frequency caps and just how much ads that you can possibly cram in front of users, there's just, there's just limitations. But a service like Amazon, the very best user on Amazon probably generates literally a thousand times more revenue than an average user. So commerce has that ability to really unlock true value of all your users. So that's just something I'm super interested in. That's a really good point. There was a, a good talk by Connie Chan from Andreessen Horowitz on the differences between East and West. Uh, and she used some examples like Tencent versus Facebook, for example. And if you look at a pie chart of where Facebook makes its money, it's 90 something percent advertising, like pr- pretty much all advertising. And then Tencent, it's actually quite evenly distributed across like subscriptions and microtransactions and advertising and some other things. How have you seen, you, you were both I think probably more familiar with China's tech ecosystem than I am. How do you see differences maybe in China and so, or some of those kind of shifting over towards the West or how do you see that kind of playing out? Yeah, I was just in China actually about a month and a half ago for a week. I met with a lot of companies over there. I was just checking out how the scene had changed since I had last been there in 2011. And it's obviously evolved quite a bit. And what's great about China is that it is a different culture and a different world that's been going through a rapid catch-up phase to Silicon Valley. Um, but because it's a different culture, and I'm somewhat of a cultural determinist, they've gone down different forks that you know Silicon Valley wouldn't have done because it's, they operate in an American context, largely. And so that's allowed us to see different paths. Like Eric said, a lot of the companies over there grew up in an environment where there wasn't a large ad market. So they were forced to be creative and and do different things. And you have also just a large growing middle class there, first time with discretionary income, a culture that is in some ways more accepting and embraces new technology more even than an American audience. And so I think while not all of it is replicable in the States because of the cultural differences, I think it's great that the world now has just a broader uh, set of experimentation in tech generally. Yeah, and the only thing I'll add is they've created incredible efficiencies in innovation with a lot of standardizations. So um, payments as an example. You can develop interesting, amazing consumer experiences knowing that a lot of the base layer of payments and distribution are taken care of by WeChat and Alibaba. Whereas here, you don't know like, wow, what credit cards the person have? Do I have to also support PayPal and Venmo? And, and, and you, you actually spend so much time on just pure plumbing that you can't actually innovate on a lot of the experiences because of the entrenched uh, existing behaviors. But they just basically 
created a brand new architecture. Um, they leaped over all of that legacy and they have ubiquity of distribution of something like payments as an example. So that's that's a really fascinating difference in that market and that you can kind of focus almost entirely on the on the end user experience, knowing that the underlying infrastructure is just taken care of for you. Yeah, it, it kind of leads to the, there's a lot of concerns around how big the, the players in the US in particular, I mean, but all of them across the world, but Facebook and all of these incumbents, Google and, and whatnot, and how how difficult it is for startups to compete with with those companies. However, in many ways, like a lot of startups like owe their success based on these companies too. Like without Facebook, a lot of companies wouldn't exist. Without Google, a lot of companies wouldn't exist. I don't know. I don't know what the, the question is exactly, but what are your thoughts around, you know, building a startup today when you have these giants, you know, who in some ways you kind of depend on as a company? Yeah, well, certainly the the part of minimum viable product is contextual always. So I think the, the bar for what is viable has been raised. It's not as easy to go out with just some very narrow sort of lean startup approach and count on success because it's just too easy for incumbents to copy and things like that. And it's easier to build. So there's more people doing yeah, the same thing. <laughs> absolutely. You know, you see this in China even more than the States where, you know, if you go over there and look at short video startup, I mean, there are hundreds of apps. I couldn't even go through all of them. People kept telling me about more. And obviously the extinction rate for those is super, super high. On the other hand, we're starting now to see that I think a lot of the incumbents in the US are running into some of their own challenges. Um, and these are just challenges that I come up with scaling in general, right? The reason that large companies get disrupted is they reach a scale where, you know, the efficiency of operations internally gets gummed up by any number of things, right? Strategy, taxes, bureaucracy, inability of execs to scale their bandwidth across many efforts, or just the basic idea that most opportunities for a large company aren't big enough to interest them, right? Apple's always like, hey, you know, if this isn't going to generate billions of dollars when we roll out of bed, then, you know, we're not going to even tackle this type of problem. So I think it's always going to be somewhat of an ebb and flow. And while it's certainly more challenging, I would say, to build a consumer tech startup than it has been at other times in history, it's still just an amazing time to even have the chance to do something like that. Yeah, I'd say that the one really interesting difference in my mind is just the prevalence and the importance of technology. My favorite stat around this is 10 years ago, in 2008, the five most valuable companies in the world, they were Exxon, PetroChina, GE, Gazprom, it's a Russian company, and China Mobile. So not a single software technology company. Today, it's Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Tencent. 100% is traditional software technology company. And it just shows the strategic importance of tech. So you've always had incumbents, you've always had, you know, very strong companies, but they were typically just very strong in your area of tech. Now, the incumbents that you're battling, the Googles, the Facebooks, Amazons of the world, are not just strong in your area of tech, they're literally the strongest companies in the history of all companies. So that's an interesting dynamic. And I'm not sure how that exactly plays out. It's been amazing to see the compounding advantage that technology companies have because everything is now tech. Tech is an enabler and a advantage in every industry. We also uh, live in the age where because of Clayton Christensen and disruption theory, you have a generation of execs who grew up knowing disruption theory. And so when something becomes widely known, it gets arbitraged out as an opportunity. So the large companies were just more savvy about spotting disruptors and taking them out early, right? You know, people laughed at the time when Zuck paid whatever he paid for WhatsApp and Instagram. And in hindsight, everybody was like, oh my gosh, like, why do we let those acquisitions happen? They were so cheap. But, 
you know, I think it's harder to sort of just like attack obliquely and catch a large company by surprise because everybody learned about disruption theory. Yeah, so. everyone's heard innovators dilemma. Even I in in business school, <laughs> um, which they they didn't really talk about or teach you how to build a technology company by any means, but that was like one on one. But ultimately, true disruption is still something I think that like at its root is something that puts the incumbent in an a bind that they can't get out of. Like they're forced to make a choice. And so I still think there's room for true disruption. It's just harder. What are some products you love? Are there things in your, your home screen that you love that more people should know about? Is there a product you recently bought that you love? Well, I'll skip traditional um, mobile apps and the tech products. <laughs> I'll go to two like physical products that I love and they're just timely right now. Uh, the first is uh, my sister just had a baby. My favorite all-time baby product in the history of all baby products is the Nose Frida. Nose so, Frida? The Nose Frida. It's a booger snot sucker for babies. <laughs> babies can't blow their nose and you got to extract this snot out of their out of their nose to help them clear it. And the nose Frida is the most amazing thing ever to do that. So anytime anyone has a baby, it's my go-to. Like, I'm like, just give me your address. <laughs> you will be getting a nose Frida in the mail. Just don't even ask. Just I, I never it. actually thought about that, to be honest. That babies the can blow Frida, their yeah. nose. Yeah. So that's one I just, I just picked up on for my sister because I'm seeing her uh, this weekend. And then the second is actually <laughs> a product that uh, was gifted to me uh, a couple months ago that I literally cannot live without. And it's the Traeger Smoker. Hmm. If you've never smoked meat, you don't know what you're missing out on. It is the most <laughs> amazing thing ever. And the Traeger Smoker is like, it's it's smoking for people that can't cook, which is me. It is set it and forget it. It is like the crock pot of smoking. It is amazing. So those are just two like products that I absolutely oh love that, that are not your traditional yeah, tech nice. products. My brother's gonna be so angry that Eric mentioned Traeger and I didn't because my brother's private equity firm owns a huge chunk of Traeger grills. <laughs> and I will second that. If you haven't had a Traeger grill, it has an internet connection, so it connects to your phone. So, you know, it's part of the trend with sous vide and software invading the cooking space, where even if you're not a great chef or something like that, the software handles a lot of the logic and measurement. So with the Traeger, you put a temperature probe into the middle of like a rack of ribs or something. You program into your phone, this is the meat I'm cooking, this is the recipe I'm using. And basically, you just like leave it. And then you get a notification on your phone when the meat hits the right temperature. And so even a novice chef now can probably cook meat to a greater degree of accuracy than a lot of professional chefs that used to have to just go by sense and feel. So that's a pretty cool thing. I will say the other thing which I found interesting this year is I went on a golf trip with some friends and I hadn't golfed in like 12 years or something. And I was like, oh my God, I got to brush up my game. Golf's and a hard game to get back into. Too. Oh, it it's, is it's, very hard to get back it's into. It's forgi- unforgiving. But they have now with the prevalence of these portable Bluetooth sensors, someone got me a, a thing called a blast motion sensor. You attach Blast this, motion? Yeah. <laughs> you attach a little like sensor to the back of your golf club. It's a club. weapon in Fortnite. I know. It sounds like one. <laughs> something from the 90s too. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. So you attach it to the back of any golf club. You tell your app on your phone, hey, I'm, you know, swinging a putter or a seven iron or something. And when you take a swing, it just gives you a bunch of stats on your phone. Like how long was your backswing? How long was your follow through and all of that? And, you know, we have this whole idea of deliberate practice being key, you know, to the 10,000 hours rule of mastery. And the thing is, in all sorts of aspects of life, we never were able to get this type of feedback unless we had a coach or somebody with a stopwatch. Now I can go to the range by myself and get this feedback without having a coach there. And you get it immediately, right? And I was like, oh, my backswing was too slow. The ratio for my backswing to my follow through on my putt wasn't right. 
And I think that is going to pervade life as these sensors get cheaper. So another thing which I think will change the world is when we can cheaply get a measure of our blood sugar without having to draw blood. And so, you know, I had tried these things out. You know, if you're a severe, uh, like a hardcore athlete, you can go to these places which will draw blood while you're on a treadmill, give you things like your VO2 max and your lactate threshold and all of that. But someday we're going to shorten that feedback loop to, you know, just looking at it on your Apple Watch or on your phone. And I think nothing else will have a bigger impact on people's diet habits, workout habits, uh, a lot of those things, because then you'll be able to put it into software and have a coach that's just watching you all the time. Like, hey, you had five French fries. That's enough. Your blood sugar spiked to some number that's going to terrify you when you see it on your watch. We just don't have that. And most of the world, I think a lot of the problems of the world are just because feedback loops are too slow. If you ate a hamburger and suddenly you couldn't even button your pants, like right at that moment, you would say, okay, I got to be careful what I eat. But instead it happens over like a couple weeks. So you let yourself go when you're traveling, you're on an expense account, have a lot of nice meals on. And then one day you're like, oh my gosh, my pants don't fit anymore. But if that happened immediately, I think your habits would change more quickly. I was, I don't know what prompted this, but the other day I was reflecting on, um, when I started to get into weightlifting and I, I was very diligent about measuring my sets and my weights and, and by keeping a record of that, even though it takes a long time to, to gain muscle mass, by keeping a record of every week, the difference in like the amount of weight I would lift, it provided feedback loops for me to stay motivated. And it took several weeks, even months to like have a transformational like change, but having like forcing myself to like create those feedback loops made it so much more fun, <laughs> so for, much more motivating. Yeah. For listeners at home, you should know that Ryan is looking incredibly ripped right now. So it's <laughs> yeah. obviously working. Yeah. Well, Ryan's actually interviewing us with uh, no shirt on. It's a I little know, embarrassing it's awkward, right now. But, uh, <laughs> it's a little awkward. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say anything, but uh, I said, I said we keep this casual. You know? uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> you form. take your shirt off too. True if form. you, yeah, if you ask successful people, right, often they are all about goal setting. And if you think about it, goal setting is just a way to pull a long-term feedback loop up into your short-term memory in a lot of ways. That's a good way of putting it. So I don't know how much you can share, but what, what are your... Eric, you just announced that you're you're moving on to do something new outside of Kleiner Perkins. What, do you, what are you thinking? What can you share? I don't know. You will certainly be the first to know, though. You know, there's certainly no shortage of really interesting, uh, fun problems to work on. And, uh, you know, just look forward to continuing to build in tech. I'm like, like you, I, I remember when we first walked in, you were mentioning that you're pretty long tech, like all of your investments, all of your net worth is just tied up in this one asset, this one sector. And is that a good or bad thing? And I think in the fullness of time, it's, it's probably a, a good thing just because of we all believe just how truly transformative tech is and, and the huge amount of opportunities that are ahead of all of us. So just super excited about that trend. Nice. What about you, Gene? What's what's next for you? Yeah, I don't know for sure, but it's been good to sort of like poke my head up this year and just look around at a lot of other products and look at tech sort of permeating all these different sectors and sort of gather some different principles that I want to bring to whatever I do next. But, you know, certainly I'm very into video as a form of media. I love that overlap of video and technology. I think we have an entire generation of kids now that are much more visually literate than, for example, my generation, you know, we often underestimate the fact that from an early age in school, kids the world over are taught how to read and write. I can't think of the last elementary school I went to where I saw kids learning about film. But now we essentially have a generation of kids that grew up with smartphones that are really good at filming themselves, <laughs> filming the real world, that have grown up watching 
things on Twitch and that have just a more intuitive sense of visual grammar. And I think that is a trend that will have sort of lagging impacts on the world. But what happens when you have an entire generation that grew up with a video as a kind of a first medium? You know, one of the things that I noticed this year is if you look at people over a certain age and you message with them, it's almost all done through text and maybe the occasional emoji or something like that. And now, you know, you're starting to get animated GIFs, but still heavily text-oriented. But if you watch young kids message and they primarily do it through Snapchat, a large majority of their messages are actually snaps, which are video or photos. I think that's an underrated trend in the world where you have an entire generation which said, you know what, actually video is more efficient. You add on top the trend that I think over time software will be better about scanning and understanding video so that it becomes more than just like a long blob of pictures. It'll understand what objects are in the video and understand what's happening in that scene. That will make video more scannable, which will remove one of its like primary disadvantages as a medium of communication. That's all really exciting to me. As a kid, I used to have a camcorder and I would film movies with friends and just film my face doing, you know, making silly faces because I'm like, you know, an adolescent. And, uh, I filmed 50, 60 hours of footage. I have it, you know, my parents like attic somewhere. If YouTube was around or if, if I had an iPhone and Snapchat or all these other tools that we have now, I actually might have a different career actually if I reflect on it. Cause I, not that I was any good at it or anything. It was just, I love the, I love the, the concept of making and a particularly video, something that you could create. It was done and you could share it with the world or well, in my case, share it with my family who, you know, would, would watch because they kind of have to. But yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see how this is shifting, how the, like the, the amount of content and the accessibility of content creation is now like changing lives. Oh, yeah. If you ever. look at like TikTok or something like that, yeah. um, that's an app that, well, we had Vine first, right? And Vine was like, all right, we're putting the six second limit on. You had a bunch of kids who, it took time, right? The first Vines were not that interesting at all. And then a bunch of kids figured out, okay, within six seconds, this is an ideal story form a kind of compressed narrative, just like all kind of punchline plus reaction. And then TikTok, and musically first, then TikTok came along and said, well, okay, let's add some tools to make it even easier to make something high quality. And you watch some of these videos and you may, you may cringe at some of them, uh, but it's hard to deny that the production quality is like a it's step amazing. up. Some yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I've watched several TikTok. I, I used to, cre I've created a hundred Mindy's. Mindy was... I think it launched technically before Musical.ly, a very similar product built by a French company. And uh, we ended up ultimately shutting down. But it was amazing, amazingly well-designed app, and it was very similar to what TikTok is today. I think the genius of both Musical.ly and TikTok are that they made content creation almost a paint-by-numbers type of experience because creating video is not only hard, but it's intimidating. You're staring at this screen, and it, there's no prompts about what you're supposed to do, and every mistake and every wrong gesture and wrong thing that you say is just amplified and sort of immoralized forever. So it's just, it's very intimidating. Whereas TikTok, it, there's a template. There's, you know, just lip sync to the song. It's a clear template. And that really dropped the the bar of creating content. They made a lot of people more comfortable with creating content. That's a, that's a real beautiful thing that they did. And I also think that another thing this generation has is they are much more used to seeing themselves through a phone camera's output than they are through seeing themselves in a mirror. And so I think there's just higher body comfort for this young generation. I mean, not all of us are as ripped and good looking as Ryan here. So, you know, <laughs> like we often feel, oh, it's so awkward to look at ourselves 
in oh, photos. I hate, <laughs> I, I hate it when you open up Snapchat and it's selfie mode and yeah. I see my own face and I'm like, oh God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Switch quick. Yeah. But, Even though it's not taking a photo. It's just yeah. like, it's jarring. Yeah. But young kids learn from a very early age. Again, this is the tight feedback loops, 10,000 hours, right? You talk to any young person, they even know how to capture their best angle, right? Anywhere there's a phone, they know how to orient their body, their face. It's like, this is where I look best. And they just have that like sensory awareness, like the same way LeBron James can sense where all the players are on a court. All these things, I think, lead to a massive generational shift in the power of video and video creation. What's going to be interesting is that when you have all these creators and you have all these moments purely uh, that are now documented and with better technology, they all be indexable and searchable. It, it just really shrinks the world. At, you know, I can go anywhere in the, at, and instantaneously and see what's going on anywhere in the world. And I can even scan my life instantaneously too. I think it'll change people's recall, people's perception of time and moments. It's, it's going to be really fascinating. I mean, for me growing up, a lot of my childhood is lost forever because I don't remember it and there's just nothing to, to, to even trigger memory because there's no media captured from that. But uh, I can see it in this younger generation where they just have far better recall because there are now ways to access things that they've they've maybe it's not it's in deep storage in their mind but uh, they need some type of cue to bring it back and there's now visual cues all over the place for them to to get access to that again so uh, i really do think it's going to change even how you perceive your your existence yeah well, there's some parents that will start twitter accounts for their kids before they're born and then as they're they're born and they're growing up they'll share photos and on their behalf use their twitter account and i presume that they eventually give the keys to the kid you know when they when they're older and that's kind of fascinating like imagine like starting and using Twitter, I don't know, let's say eight, nine, 10 years old, and you already have eight, nine, 10 years old of, of history <laughs> and, and maybe even have an audience. Like I'm actually thinking about Alexis Ohanian and Serena's kid. Oh yeah. They have a, a Twitter account and by the power of their two networks, you know, over time, that could be, you know, a healthy audience that this kid now when they're 10 years old could have oh, tens, sure. hundreds of thousands of followers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think that the other thing that's funny about video is it is in many ways a more universal language than text. So, you know, I can watch videos on Douyin or something from China, and I may not understand, you know, like someone may not understand everything that's being said in the video, but it's usually pretty self-explanatory in a way that, you know, like if you were looking at like Weibo or something here in the U.S., like a lot of people would just have no idea what's going on in that app. So, you know, as we see these giant tech companies look to penetrate um, other international markets, I think video will be an easier foothold for them. Yeah. Nice. So where can people find you? Twitter. Twitter. Yifeng. E-F-E-N-G. Find me at Twitter. And you, you've been writing a bit. I mean, yeah. Right now and then you're, every couple months or so. Uh, I try to do something once a month on Medium as well. I, I love data. I love doing actual research. It's entertaining. So uh, once a month, I, I usually pick a topic and share just something I've been doing research on. So last few blog posts, I did one actually on on TikTok uh, and and the parent company ByteDance, which has um, a very, very popular, successful news app called Totiao in China. Before that, I wrote one on Pokemon Go, which is something that ended up playing a bunch. This month hit level 40, which is the max level in all of Pokemon Thank you. Thank you. Nice. Big accomplishment. <laughs> and uh, I have also written uh, some stuff on sort of the state of investing in startups, but love doing research. Nice. Eugene, you've been writing a bit too. Not not maybe as much, but yours are you're deep. You go deep. I haven't written recently. Yeah, I, uh, I've i been traveling and stuff, so I, I hit a little bit of wall on that. But hopefully I'll pick that up uh, starting in the new year. Um, Remains so of I, the day. Check it out. <laughs> yeah. It's at eugeneway.com. Um, and my Twitter is also just at eugeneway, W-E-I. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank Thanks, you. buddy. Good time. Take care. I'm here with Phil, co-founder and VP of business development at Carbon, a GE Ventures portfolio company 
that works at the intersection of hardware, software, and molecular science to create groundbreaking digital 3D manufacturing solutions. Reading up on Carbon a little bit before this, I know there was some talk about the Terminator movie. What you're building is replicating some of the CG that we saw in that film decades ago. Is there some inspiration there or is it just happened to kind of like the sci-fi that we've seen in movies uh, just comes to be? Very much so. The Terminator movie was definitely an inspiration. If you remember the scene where one of the Terminators actually grows out of the pool of liquid, we very much imagined a world where if we could make that a reality, we would have an opportunity to make things much faster than historically achievable, but also focus on creating structures and products not made possible before through traditional manufacturing methods. How is it different than maybe 3D printers that people have seen today? What makes carbon unique? Historically, other 3D printing processes are layer-by-layer technologies. The technology that we are bringing to market is continuous. So it allows us to print much faster, allows us to print parts that are monolithic, that have better mechanical properties, and allows us to get into a deep well of chemistries that historically were unachievable in the additive space. Is there a particular use case or product, maybe something tangible that you can describe that's using carbon today? Maybe it's a product that people actually use and they don't even know it was possibly built with carbon? The largest user of 3D printers today is Adidas, all based on carbon's digital light synthesis process. We partnered with them in 2016 to bring the first 3D printed shoe to market at mass scale. We've now delivered hundreds of thousands of these components going to millions a year. That was actually the most important moment in the history of 3D printing. For the first time ever, it was possible to make things not only at large scale in millions of units, but also make them economically. On top of that, deliver a product that was better performing than traditional manufacturing methods. A major point in time in the 30-year history of 3D printing. It was the the thing that people had talked about since the 3D printer was first invented back in 1989 as what it could ultimately become. How has GE Ventures been helpful to Carbon? GE has been an investor and a huge supporter of Carbon from the early days. They participated in our 2016 Series C as well as followed on in, in our Series D in 2017. You may know GE is one of the folks in the forefront when it comes to digital manufacturing and big data. And we've learned a lot from them and have been hugely helpful in getting us into new markets as well as new opportunities. This has been super interesting. Thanks, Phil, for coming in the show and GE Ventures for making this interview possible. Check out ge.com slash ventures to learn more about how they work with startups like Carbon. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.